Chapter Thirty of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Calvin Gray did not return to the bank. He went straight to his hotel, and as soon as he could sufficiently control himself to do so, he telephoned Gus Briscoe, telling him that he intended to leave town. Then he began mechanically to pack his bag. He moved like a man in a trance, for the blow had fallen so suddenly as to numb him. His only impulse was to escape, to hide himself from these people who, of a sudden, had become hateful. His city of dreams had collapsed. The ruins, as they lay, meant nothing as yet, for his mind refused to envisage them, and he could see them only as they had stood. He groped amid a hopeless confusion of thought, at one moment bewildered, piteously hurt, at the next suffering a sense of shameful betrayal. He had grown old and dull and feeble, too, and for the time being he was incapable of feeling the full force of the strong man's resentment. This surprised him vaguely. Soon, however, like kindling fires among the ruins, his fury rose, fury at himself, at Buddy, at Barbara, and in the heat of those scorching flames he writhed. She had loved him, he'd swear to that. He had swayed her, overpowered her. He had lacked only the courage to trust his instinct. Coward's luck. It served him right. He had held her in his arms and had let her slip through. Her lips had been raised to his, and he had refused to press them imbecile. He groaned. He tore the collar and tie from his neck, for they were choking him. Old, huh? Too old? That was the grimmest jest of all, for at the mere thought of Barbara's lips, unruly forces took possession of him. He experienced a fierce, resistless vigor, such as he had never felt in his younger days. It was dreadful, an unappeasable yearning of soul and body and when the paroxysm had passed, it left him weak. He sank into a chair and lay there, stupid, inert, until again those fires began to lick at him, and again he twisted in dumb agony. Buddy Briscoe, Buddy of all people, that lout, that awkward simpleton, who owed him everything. But Buddy was young. Gray heard himself laughing in hoarse derision. He rose and tramped heavily around his room, and as he went, he crushed and ripped and mutilated whatever his hands encountered. His slow, deliberate, murderous rage demanded some such outlet. All the while he felt within himself two conflicting impulses, heard two voices. The one voice shouted at him to search out Buddy and visit upon him the punishment warranted by a base betrayal. The other told him jeeringly to lay the scourge upon his own shoulders and endure the pain, since he had betrayed himself. His mind was like a battleground, torn, upheaved, obscured by a frightful murk. He remembered a night in France, a black night of rumbling, crashing terror, when, as now, the whole world rocked and tumbled. Some remnant of self-control induced him to lock his door and pocket the key, for Buddy might come. He probably would look him up 
all grins and smirks and giggles, to tell him the glorious news, to acclaim the miracle. That would be too much. One thing was certain. There was no safety except in flight, ignominious, cowardly flight. After all, how could Buddy have known? He was a good boy, and he had shown his love, his loyalty, in a thousand ways. Gray hated him at this moment, but more bitterly even, he hated himself. It was fate. He fell to cursing aloud, but there was no relief in that, and again the appalling irony of the situation silenced him. He had deified himself, set himself upon a high place, bent men and affairs to his own ends, until he had acquired a godlike belief in his power to accomplish all things. His victory had been complete. He had won all, except the one thing he most desired, the very fruit of victory. Sometime later he heard Buddy come whistling merrily down the hall and knock at his door. Gray cowered in his chair, listening in breathless dread until the footsteps retreated. When he rose, he moved about stealthily. When night came, he took his bag and slunk out of the hotel, for it seemed that men must surely know what a fool he had made of himself. It would have been a relief to feel that he was leaving never to return. But even that was denied him, for after his first panic, the truth had come home. He could not run away. He had forged chains for his own limbs. Like a tethered mustang, he could plunge only to the end of his rope. Friendship again. There was simple, trustful, faithful Gus Briscoe and the bank. God, what a mess things were in. Gray knew he would have to return have to see Bob and Buddy day after day, month after month, and the prospect was too distressing to dwell upon. Again his mind grew weary, baffled. He experienced a wretched physical illness. Where to go, where to hide, until his sickness had passed? That was the question. For the first time, he appreciated the full extent of his loneliness, his utter lack of resource in a crisis like this. Most men, however solitary, lay by material things for themselves, build homes, and surround themselves with personal possessions from which, or amid which, they can gain some sort of solace in times of trial. But he had not fashioned so much as a den into which he could creep and lick his wounds. Once he had left his hotel room behind him, he was in the open and without cover. Not a single soul cared whether he came or went. Not another door stood ajar for him. And he had planned so much upon having a home, a real home. But he could not trust himself to think much along that line. It induced an absurd desire to weep at his plight. It made him feel like a child lost in a wood. That was silly, just an emotional reaction. Nevertheless, the impulse was real, and caused him to yearn poignantly for human comfort. He thought of Ma Briscoe finally. She was human. She had a heart. And Dallas was a sort of homey place. Anyhow, the bellboys at the Ajax knew and liked him. That was probably because he had tipped them handsomely. But what of that? 
If they had been kind to him, now he'd tip them more handsomely than ever. Lonely men, old ones, must expect to pay for what they get. He bought a ticket to Dallas. Ma Briscoe's eyes were dim. Nevertheless, she saw the change in Calvin Gray when, late in the following afternoon, he came to see her. Land sake, she exclaimed in a shocked voice. Pa never said you was Ellen. Why, Mr. Gray? I'm not really ill, he told her wearily, just old. I had a bad night. Seating himself beside her couch, he took her hand in his and made her tell him all about herself. He had brought her an armful of flowers, as usual, and extravagant gifts for her adornment. Giving, it seemed, was his unconscious habit. While she admired them with ecstatic ohs and ahs, he busied himself with bowls and vases, but Ma noted his fumbling uncertainty of touch and the evident effort with which he kept up his assumption of good cheer. She told him finally, "'Something mighty bad has happened to you, Mr. Gray.' He gazed at her mutely, then nodded. "'Is it something about the Princess of Wichita Falls?' "'Yes, Ma.' "'Tis-tis-tis. It was a sympathetic cluck. "'Was she a wicked princess?' The query was gently put, but it deeply affected the man. He tried to smile, failed. Then, like a forlorn little boy, he came and bowed his head beneath her hand. "'I knew you'd understand, Mother Briscoe, so I, I ran to you with my hurt, just as I used to run to my mother Gray.' After a while, he continued, in a smothered voice, "'She isn't a wicked princess. She didn't mean to hurt me, and... That's what makes it hurt so deep. She tumbled the old duke's castle down upon his head, tumbled the old duke out of his dreams. He isn't a duke any longer. He'll always be a duke, Miss Briscoe firmly declared. He was born that way. At any rate, he's a sad old duke now. All his conceit is gone. You see, he was a vain old gentleman, and his courtiers used to tell him he was splendid, handsome. They said he looked as handsome as a king, and by and by he began to think he must be a king. His enemies sneered at this and said he was neither duke nor king, but a mountebank. That made him furious, so he went to war with them, and by Jove, he fought pretty well for an old fellow. Anyhow, he licked them. When they fell down and begged for mercy, he knew he was indeed a great person, greater even than he had suspected, and worthy of any princess in the land. Shaw, ain't a duke higher than a princess? No, Ma, not higher than this princess. Her father made all the laws. She is very noble and very good. Good princesses are scarce, and... And so, of course, they're very high. But the Duke of Dallas didn't stop to think of that. He told himself that he was so strong and so rich and so desirable that she would be flattered at his notice. He got all dressed up and went to call on her, and, on the way, whenever he looked into a shop window, he didn't see the buns and the candies and the dolls inside. All he saw was his own reflection. It looked so magnificent that he strutted higher, 
and thought how proud he was going to make her. I guess that was the trouble with the old duke all along. He had never looked deeply enough to see what was inside. Anyhow, what do you think, Ma? While he'd been off at war, conquering people and making them acknowledge that he was a king, the little princess had fallen in love with, with his nephew. Nice boy, that nephew, and the duke thought a lot of him. Ma Briscoe's hand, which had been slowly stroking Gray's bent head, ceased its movement. She drew a sharp breath. There happened to be an old mirror in the princess's boudoir, and while the duke was waiting for her, he saw himself in it. He saw himself just as he was, not as he had looked in the shop windows, for it was a truthful mirror, and it told everything. My, that was a bad moment for the Duke of Dallas, when he saw that he wasn't young and beautiful, but old and wrinkled and funny. That was bad enough, but when he looked again and saw the princess whom he'd loved in the arms of his handsome nephew, why, he gave up. All his fine garments fell off, and he realized with shame that, after all, he was only the withered mountebank. When he got home, his castle had collapsed. There wasn't a stone standing, so he ran away, ran to his mother. Oh, Mr. Gray, Ma Briscoe quavered, I could cry. After all you've done for Buddy. The man shook his head vigorously, still with his face hidden. It isn't Buddy, it's youth. Youth needs no fine adornment, no crown, no victory. What are you going to do? she asked him. Go on playing the Duke, I suppose. Rebuild the castle the best way I can. That's the hard part. If I could run away and forget, but I can't. The old Duke walled himself in. He must grin and strut and keep people from guessing that he's only a fraud until he can find a hole in the wall through which he can creep. There was a long silence. Then Ma inquired, Would you like to tell me something about the little princess? Sometimes it helps to talk. Not yet. You're a duke, and the best one that ever lived, Mr. Gray. You can't fool me. I've met too many of them. That looking-glass lied. Real dukes and kings and such people don't get old. It's only common folks. There's lots of magic. The world's full of it, and your castle is going up again. After a fashion, perhaps, Gray raised his head and smiled crookedly. But it will never be a home, and that's what I wanted most of all. Do you think I'm very weak, very silly, to come to you for a little mothering? That's the kind of children mothers love best, the old woman said. Then she drew him down to her and laid her cheek against his. There, I've made you cry, he exclaimed reproachfully. What a selfish beast I am. I'll go now. Won't you stay and have supper with Allie and me? We're awful lonesome with Pa gone. Allie's out somewheres, but it would do me good to know you were here, and it'll do you good to stay. You can rest yourself while I take my nap. Ma Briscoe did not wish to take a nap, but she knew that Gray needed the solace of his own thoughts just now, so when he agreed, she sent him downstairs. First balm, indeed, had come to the man, the smart, 
was less intense. To put his trouble into words somehow lightened it. Then, too, the grateful knowledge that some warmth of sympathy was his made it easier to bear. But it remained a cruel burden. That gentle, dreamy soul up yonder could not know how it hurt. How could she understand, for instance, what it meant to go back and face the deadly dull routine of a life from which all zest, all interest had fled? A routine broken only by moments of downright torture. Yes, and the effort it would take to smile. God, if there were only some way to break his fetters, to slip his jayons. Gray's brain, like his body, had grown tired and feverish, to be sure. Little more than a day had gone by since he had sallied forth like a knight. But it seemed a year, an age, and every hour brought a new and keener distress. He found it possible now, for the first time, to relax a bit physically. So he closed his eyes and lay back in an easy chair while the twilight stole in upon him. Sooner or later his mind, too, would cease its torment, for pain distills its own anodyne. Then he would sleep. It would be a blessing to forget for even an hour, and thus gain strength with which to carry on the fight. But what a useless battle it was. He could never win. Peace would never come. He heard Allie enter the house, but he did not stir. He would have to put on the mask soon enough, for, of course, she must never suspect on Buddy's account. The room, which had grown agreeably dark, was suddenly illuminated, and he lurched to his feet to find the girl facing him from the door. She was neither startled nor surprised at his presence, and when he tried to smile and to greet her in his accustomed manner, she interrupted him by saying, I knew you were here. So, then Ma's awake again? Allie shook her head vaguely. I knew you were here the minute I came in. I can almost always tell. There had been a shadow of a smile upon her lips, but it vanished. A look of growing concern crept over her face. What's the matter? What has happened, Mr. Gray? Why, nothing. I was feeling tired, worn out, indulging myself in a thoroughly enjoyable fit of the blues. His voice broke when he tried to laugh. Allie uttered a quick, low cry, a wordless, sympathetic sound. Her eyes widened, grew darker. She came forward a step or two, then she halted. "'Would you rather be alone?' she asked. He signified his dissent, and she went on. "'I know what the blues are like. I sit alone in the dark a good deal.' She busied herself about the room for a few moments, straightening things, adjusting the window shades. Allie had the knack of silence, blessed attribute in man or woman, and to Gray's surprise, he found that her mere presence was comforting. She startled him by saying suddenly, "'You're hurt, hurt badly.' He looked up at her with an instinctive denial upon his lips, but realizing the futility of deceit, he nodded, "'Yes, Allie.' The girl drew a deep breath. Her strong hands closed harshly. She said, I could kill anybody that hurt you. I wanted to kill Buddy that time. Is it those Nelsons? Have they got you down? 
There was something fierce and masterful in Allie's concern, and her inquiry carried with it even more than a proffer of help. She had, in fact, flung herself into a protective attitude. She suggested nothing so much as a lioness roused. No, no, it's nothing like that. I merely fooled myself, had a dream. You wouldn't understand, my dear. Allie studied him soberly for a moment. Oh, yes, I would. I do. I understand perfectly. Nobody could understand as well as I do. What do you mean by that? I've been hurt, too. She laid a hand upon her breast. That's why I sit in the dark. My dear child, I'm sorry, Gus said. You were unhappy. But I thought it was merely the new life. You're young. You can forget. It's only us old ones who can't forget. Sometime you must tell me all about it. The girl smiled faintly, but he nodded positively. Oh, it's a relief to tell somebody. I feel better already for confiding in Ma. Yes, and your sympathy is mighty soothing, too. It seems almost as if I had come home. He closed his eyes and laid his head back. Allie placed her hand upon his forehead and held it there for a moment, before she moved away. It was a cool and tranquilizing palm, and he wished she would hold it there for a long time, so that he could sleep, forget. Allie Briscoe went to her room, and there she studied her reflection in the mirror carefully, deliberately before saying, You can do it. You've got to do it, for he's hurt. When a girl is hurt like that, it makes a woman of her. But when a man's hurt, it makes him a little boy. I guess it pays to keep on praying. It was perhaps a half hour later that Ma Briscoe heard a sound that caused her to rise upon her elbow and listen with astonishment. It was the sound of low, indistinct, but joyous singing. It came from Allie's room. Allie singing again. What could have happened? Slowly, Ma's face became wistful, eager. Oh, Mr. Fairy King, she whispered, please build up his castle again. You can do it. There's magic in the world. Make him a duke again and her a queen. For yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. End of chapter 30 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas End of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach